We've been going through our little cycle of, uh, excuse me a second, let's tuck my cables away, uh, reach, uh, recruit, reach, reap, reproduce. We've been through our first cycle, now we're going to go through the cycle again. So hopefully we'll be able to build on uh, um, each uh, of the first messages and uh, not repeat one another too much. It's always a little bit of a concern when someone's preached on the same thing before you and you've not consulted beforehand. Uh, but uh, hopefully, I mean, Chris did such a magnificent job introducing the whole theme of recruitment and hopefully I can build on that. Now, if you turn in your Bibles to Luke, we'll be turning to that quite soon and looking at uh, how Jesus uh, is the master recruiter. So we'll be looking at that quite soon. But I'm just going to put a few introductory comments out there. So drilling deeper into the foundation Chris has already laid, excellent foundation on what it means to recruit. We've um, been involved with quite a number of church plants over the years, and uh, we've identified two particular choke points as these church plants have developed. The first has been recruiting um, the, the core team to go. So you have a sort of a highly motivated pioneering couple and, and maybe uh, one or two with them, and you say, look, you know, let's, uh, let's get some, some, some substance in here. Let's really build a core team. That's one of our, our first choke points where a number of our church plants have got stuck over the years. And the second choke point has been the transition, uh, the transition from sort of strong pioneering leadership couple to a plural eldership and uh, raising up you know, uh, men of eldership stature for that transition. So I want to try and tackle this first choke point, recruiting an initial core team. And it's quite dear to my heart. I've been struck over a recent season by how very... English, so many of our pioneers can be when it comes to recruitment. It's a bit like sort of the Dad's Army Sergeant Wilson approach to recruitment. You know, I, I, I say, I, I wonder if you would, uh, wouldn't mind awfully uh, uh, considering perhaps possibly joining us on our mission, you know, uh, for a bit of a jolly, you know. <laughs> it's quite English. You know, I'm a little bit too polite to ask, really. I don't want to intrude or bother you too much. You know, I don't want to presume. I don't want to presume, you know. <laughs> and, uh, <clears throat> you know, folks, it's not a presumption. You're helping people discover their destiny, all right? Okay, that's what you're doing. When you ask them, hey, what's God doing in your life? Have you considered coming and joining me in the mission that God has put on my life? You're not um, being presumptuous. You're not sort of... No, you are, you're giving them an appropriate destiny dilemma. All right? Okay? <laughs> okay, that's what you're doing. You're saying, all right, you know, you've got to think about this now. I've given you a problem. All right? Because you were thinking, oh, it'd be nice to go over here. Now I'm saying, well, you could think about going over there, couldn't you? All right, and then that compels them to go back to God and say, well, God, what are you saying here? All right? So I love giving people destiny dilemmas. All right? I specialise in this, okay? We want all of our pioneers to be rampant recruiters, okay? Jesus was a rampant recruiter. We'll look at how he did that a little later on. Because I'm absolutely convinced in, you know, and remember, we're talking about four pistons of an engine here. So 
when you're listening to someone preaching about, you know, uh, recruit and then someone, re- you know, about uh, reach and someone reap and reproduce, these things are not in tension with each other, you know. So, uh, Clyde was hitting that yesterday. It's not that the XYZ isn't important, but the ABC is important. And, but also the XYZ is important, you know. We've got, it's like four pistons of an engine that we're talking about here. And each of them are important in their own right, and we've got to couple them all together if you really want to get power in the engine. And I, am, I have become convinced that if you're going to fight a battle, you need an army. <laughs> you need an army. And sometimes we've sent out, you know, um, our own confession, we've sent out too small an army for the battle. And they can easily get overwhelmed. Needy and broken people take a lot of time to care for and straighten out. They really do. And if your army is too small, you, you, you're going to get overwhelmed very, very quickly. And uh, you only need a few before you're going to get saturated. So you need to recruit an army of capable, prepared soldiers who are ready to help and serve the mission. Straight out of the box. They're up and running. Yeah? You're not sitting for months and months debating you know, what's our view on this and what's our view on that. They know what you're trying to do. They, they're with you. They're going to go. Recruit an army. I love it when... I coach pioneers to be shameless in recruiting, and then they try and recruit my best people. I love that, all right? <laughs> They're sort of turning my own tricks against me. I'm thinking, I see them, and I think, you cheeky so-and-so, but I can hardly blame you because I taught you to do that, you know? You've got to, and I, you know, we shouldn't be threatened as church leaders. I'm always a bit nervous when leaders are threatened. Now, obviously, there are protocols to respect, you know, if we're looking, I'm going to nab your best person and take him with me on my... There's protocols to respect in terms of, uh, you know, um, discussing with church leaders. And there may be very, very valid pastoral reasons and issues why that wouldn't be appropriate. But if a church leader is too uh, defensive and protective of his resources, I get a bit nervous. I think, are you... Because if you are holding people to yourself against the destiny for their lives, that's not going to do them any good and it's not going to do you any good. You've just got someone living out of their destiny among you because you've not been prepared to release them. So I'm always a little bit circumspect when leaders are a little bit uh, defensive in that way. But I, I love it when pioneers are you know, shamelessly recruiting. I love it when they describe their nation or city or town or obscure corner of the world as the centre of the universe. You know, I love it when they say that. They say, hey, you've got to come to... You know, diddly squip by sea. It is the centre of the universe, you know? And it, <laughs> because for them it is. It's, it's, where God, it's the centre of God's purpose for their lives. And it may well be the centre of God's purpose for other people's lives as well. So, yes, it is the centre of the universe. It's the call of God for their lives. The King of Heaven has called them to go there on a mission. Of course it's the centre of the universe for them. So that's great. I don't mind. It may be the centre of the universe for you also. Uh, Jesus, we just sung about Jesus the Nazarene. You know, isn't that... Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Well, clearly, yes. (laughs) You know? The risen and ascended King Jesus, Lord of the heavens, the King of Jerusalem and the Jews. Yeah? He's happy to describe himself when he, you know... Paul in Acts 22 is saying, I had this encounter with the risen Lord Jesus. He said, hey, I'm Jesus of Nazareth. You know, I just love that, that he's happy to identify himself with an obscure place 
And the people there even try to kill him, for goodness sake. He said, no, hey, that, that's where I come from. That's me. And it's a beautiful thing. So, you know, wherever God has put you, don't be ashamed. If, it, you know, if it's a, a glorious, glamorous place, that's great. If it seems obscure, no, that is the centre of the universe for you and you should be shamelessly recruiting, all right, for what God has called you to do. Don't apologise for your mission. Don't apologise. Don't say, well, you know, Sergeant Wilson, ooh, you know, terrible, terrible. It's just a little place. We're doing a little thing for Jesus. No, that is your obedience of faith. God has called you to that. And you should be shamelessly recruiting people to come and join you on your mission. So who to recruit? Let's look at some priorities. We've got the next slide behind here. These are some of the priorities of recruitment. They're there's no sort of rules. I'm just saying there's some priorities here. Recruit among those who know you best. Your home church, people with whom you have a long history or a strong connection. I've, uh, I went to Ipswich a few years ago. We arrived in a bit of a dicey situation and I immediately started calling people in that I knew. I didn't know the people in the church so well. I, I, I thought, I need some ballast here. You know, I need some, I need some, uh, some, some weight, and, and, and I invited in some friends, people that were able to come, and, and they moved and joined us. So this wasn't even in a pioneering situation. This was in an existing situation. I was recruiting people who knew me well, people I could look across the room at when things were a bit precarious, or I was feeling a bit lacking in courage or confidence, and they'd give me a, a nod and a wink, and you think, oh, you know, there's someone in the room who's with me, who knows me, that's seen me at my best, and they've seen me at my worst, and they they're still here, you know, and uh, it's so helpful. It's so precious to have those people with you. You, knew, you need those people with you. Andy Moyle, when he went to King's Lynn, he, he carried with him people from the church that was sending him. Same with you, isn't it? When you went to Colchester, you carried people with you. I always ask pioneers, who do you know? You know, who, who can you think of? Anybody you've met over the last 20 years, you know, and um, go and ask them. Ask everybody. Just go and ask them. You know? Who have you ever met or worked with that might, you might be able to call to? I was um, looking for, you know, so I was in Ipswich for a few years. It wasn't my intention to be leading the team there. It just had gone a bit wrong and I inherited that and then was looking for someone to succeed me so I could be released out of that situation. And Mike said to me, Mike Betsy said, Morris, you've got to call to your sons. So I, uh, I called to this guy that I'd known since he was four years old. And I discipled him in his teens. He was in his uh, 20s. He was down in Southampton. His father had been an elder with me in the first church that I'd been involved with. And I called to him. And he said, no way. <laughs> <laughs> so let's move on. Yeah. <laughs> and nine months later, the idea came to birth. And he wrote and he said, I'm in. Yeah. And he's now up and he's leading the team there and in Ipswich. Bravest man in relational mission. You've all got your opinion of who is the bravest man in relational mission. I know who the bravest man in relational mission is. It's the man who took his own mother-in-law church planting. <laughs> Phil Whittle, what a brave man you are. How brave is that? <laughs> Nana Kate, I mean, she's a, a wonderful lady. Tragic uh, circumstances. She went to help with the church plant in the UK and her husband sadly died and so she was left on her own. So she sold up 
And she said, I'm going with you, Phil and Emma, and went and helped them buy a house in Stockholm. It's an expensive place to buy a house. And uh, she uh, helped set them up, buy a house in Stockholm so they could get going with their church plant and join them on their mission. And Phil thanked her by giving her a room in the basement. (laughs) It's true. It's true, Phil. Yep. When you visit Phil's home and you say, where's your mother-in-law? He calls down the stairs and she emerges out of the basement, you see. (laughs) What a brave man. Okay, recruit among those who know you best. <laughs> hey. Hey, recruit officer material. You need officer material. You're fighting a war. You're going on a mission. You need to raise an army. You need officer material. Okay, you're looking for strong, capable, seasoned campaigners who can relate, uh, reco- relocate to join you in the mission. All right? And never take no for an answer. All right? Dilemma of destiny. Never take, uh, you know, always, I'm always saying, consider us, remember us, keep us in your thinking. One day you're going to come to a crossroads and you're going to have to think about a life changing dis- decision. When you come to that point, I want you to remember this conversation. All right? I want you to think about whether God might be calling you to be part of what we're doing. Okay? Don't take no for an answer. You're not looking to coerce people or twist their arm. You're just helping them stare down their destiny, all right? You're just you're saying, I'm not going to, you know, don't just sort of wander off. Don't just sort of do something that looks bright and attractive. You know, God is looking for the obedience of faith in your life. And I am here to make sure you'll be obedient in faith for the call of God on your life. And I have all sorts of ways I can help you do that. All sorts of tools, all sorts of filters, all sorts of ways that we can help you discover the destiny God has for your life. And, uh, you know, I'm giving people a reasonable dilemma. Think about this. Have you considered this? Be specific how they can help. Be specific about what you feel they can bring to the party. It's not just we need a few numbers. No, I've seen this in you. I think it could be really helpful if God is calling you to be part of this situation. So you've got to recruit officer material. Recruit among those who are easily mobile. Now, that's not to say that people in other circumstances should not be called. Of course they should. But this is the low-hanging fruit of recruitment. People who are in a season of life and they're easily mobile. Early retirees, often self-resourcing. You know, we've got a 50-plus generation that John, to my great depression, has assured me is the last generation that will have money to hand on to the next generation. Did you hear him say that? Was I the only one who was a bit depressed when he said that? You know, but yeah, you've got, you know, a lot of people who, you know, people are living longer now, they've they got strength through to their 70s and beyond, and people can be retiring in their 50s, and you think they've got decades of, of fruitful help and strength and ministry to contribute here. You know, that's low-hanging fruit. Come on, you know, you, you can relocate. You can come and be part of what God is doing. You can play your part in all of this. You know, single people, young marriage with preschool kids, uh, go, uh, you know, uh, look around new residential developments. You know, has God moved in some Christians into town? Teenagers, students. I'm, I'm a little bit weary. People have heard me say this several times of people saying, you know, oh, well, our town, you know, where we live, people, uh, young people leave to go to university and they never come back, you know, where they just go and they never come back. And I'm thinking, well, have you given them any reason to come back? 
You know? If that really is your attitude, it's not very attractive, is it? You know? Oh, I guess you're going to go as well. You know. Give them a, a dilemma. You know, if you don't believe in your mission, how can you expect them to? So I did, for my own smug satisfaction, a little experiment in this a few years ago. And I was, at the time, I was in a very, very small rural church in North Norfolk. And we had six teenagers coming through, six lads, and I discipled them once a month for a year. And for half of the time, we went through enjoying God's grace together, because I figure if you can get that foundation in, everything else will work its way out. You know? And then the second half of the time, I just ranted about our vision in Norfolk. <laughs> I just said, you know, this, this is what God's doing. It's really exciting. Here's the story. This is what happened. You know, when you go off to university or do your gap year or whatever, and you're thinking about what doing, you're going to do next, consider us. Think about coming back. We'd love you to be part of what we're doing here. We've got more churches to plant. We've got another generation of leaders to bring through. Five out of six of them came back. All right, smug satisfaction. I'll repent later. But, uh, all right. And number six was Tom, who I got uh, to come to Ipswich the other year. So we got him in there. Six out of six. <laughs> you know, if you don't, if you, if you don't give people a reason, they're never going to consider it. You know, you don't get, because you don't ask. That's what Chris said. Ask. It's not your job to make the decision for them. It's your job to give them a menu of options. Okay? And then it's then their job to consider and weigh carefully before the weight of scripture, prophetic witness, wise counsel, internal witness, all these different tools and filters, what is God actually saying to me? You know, I, I, if I'd have never asked Tom, you know, I wonder if he would ever have discovered this destiny to come and, and join us in Ipswich. You know, I'm sure in the grace of God somehow it may have come around, but I had to ask him. Recruit among those who are familiar with our ways. Again, it's not an argument against recruiting people from outside of our family, but in the early days, to have a critical mass of people who are already on your page will help greatly as you start to draw in and integrate people from different value systems. Okay, it will help. Values are best caught and not taught. And if you have this sort of critical core community mass, you can demonstrate these values, not just describe them. So invite yourself to every church in your network. Just invite yourself, okay? Can I come to your church? I just need five minutes. I just need two minutes. 90 seconds. Just give me an opportunity just to tell people what God is doing with us in uh, whatever location that God sent me to. And... Uh, just see if there's those who are already familiar with our ways who may be drawn to do that. So, you know, invite yourself. Don't sit there thinking, well, no one ever asked me to come. Invite yourself, for goodness sake. Come on, stop being English. All right? Go and say, I need to come and tell you what God is doing. Could I have just, I just need two minutes in your notices just to tell people about the church plant that I'm involved in, okay? Reach out to uh, anyone you've ever known, as I said, and let them know about your mission. Never delete people from your email prayer list, all right? Oh, we haven't heard from them for a while, I'll take them off the list. No, don't, unless they, you really don't want them to come, or you, you really, or they don't really don't want to come, never delete them. Seeds of vision can take many years to germinate, but it's wonderful when, it's happen when it happens. I've invited people, it can be years before they say, you know what? You know, we're at a time of 
transition. We really feel God is calling us to this now. And, uh, it's a beautiful thing when it happens, you know. And recruit favour in the community. Uh, just, you know, we're, we're talking about recruitment. Um, uh, it's, it's not simply recruiting out there. It's also you, networking is so important. You, you may arrive somewhere, you may be assimilating the culture, you may be learning the language, you may be sowing all the seeds of recruitment, praying people will consider coming, giving them a dilemma of destiny, they come and join you. But in the meantime, there's so much work, fruitful work to be done, just networking with other leaders, getting to know them, honouring them, you know, other church planters, being ge generous in spirit to other spiritual leaders, show them the greatest honour and respect. We're not the competition. Although for some it will feel like that. We have to be sensitive to that. I remember speaking with one church leader, good, good, good man, and he said that us coming to plant the church made him feel as though he was not doing a good enough job. You know, we don't want, that's not, we don't want that, you know. We don't want to create that atmosphere. So we just have to be responsible and attentive to that. That is not our intention. We don't just come blasting in, you know. Um, network with community leaders. We're here for good. We're here for good. That was the first ever mission, Grantly, that we did in the first ever church plant. Here for good. You know, we're here for good, and we're here for good. Now you're getting it, yeah? We're not going anywhere, but we're here for good. We're here for good. We're here to bless the community. Richard Allen up in Sheringham, he's a master at serving the community over the years. He's got such favour with community leaders. His town council was criticised by the government for not doing enough to energise the community of the town. And they replied with an open letter to the government, which they had printed in the local paper, describing all the things that our church was doing in the town. And he was talking about Richard's church. So the town council, to defend their record of serving their community, was saying, look what our church has done, you know? <laughs> Years later, Richard had a planning dispute about a major building project in town. There had come some objections. The planning officer demanded they resubmit a replacement full planning application. It would have been months of delay, thousands of pounds of costs. And Richard had a quiet word with the council leaders. And within a couple of days, he received a letter of apology from the planning department. Okay? That's great, isn't it? Local favour is hard-earned, very easily lost, all right? But, uh, yeah, recruit local favour. So let's look at Jesus, the master recruiter. If you've got Luke 4 there, we're just going to go through uh, some uh, uh, bullet points of how we can learn from Jesus in his ability to recruit <clears throat> what he teaches us about this. So Luke 4, 1 to 13, we know Jesus was led by the Spirit in the wilderness, not just into, but in the wilderness. He was, uh, God took him into this. And this is where Jesus' internal authority is established. And I, I don't need to address this too uh, much because Chris covered this beautifully yesterday, just the, the journey of establishing our internal authority in God. And this was where Jesus was you know, battling with all sorts of issues that were challenging his internal authority. And you need to win the battle for your private universe. This is where it starts. Internal authority is paramount and is forged through seasons of internal challenge and delay. 
right? It's, it's not my major point today because Chris has dealt with this, but it is a major matter, all right? So Luke 4.14, he returned in the power of the Spirit. So he returns with internal God-ordained authority and power for the mission, okay? And this is part of the purpose of an event like this is that we want to send each other out in power for the mission, okay? Not just with a list of good ideas. Uh, what is more significant that you have been empowered for the mission and Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit. Again, we've covered that well through uh, Chris's first half looking at this. Luke 4.15 speaks of Jesus being glorified by all. What that's talking of is the fact that his authority was now being externally established. People were recognising the authority of God on his life and the call of God on his life. They were starting to recognise this. Okay, if you are hoping to be sent, I do believe it's important that your authority is already being externally recognised. You know, I think it is a stretch to believe that, that there are certain things that you might aspire to do in another place that you haven't even yet been able to demonstrate in your own backyard. Now, not everybody would agree with that, and I don't think God you know, is restricted by that. He breaks all the rules. He can make the rules, he can break the rules. But I think as a matter of good practice, you know, to, to, for there to be a sense of that your, your authority has been demonstrated and recognised, uh, then it can be exported. <laughs> it's going to be tough enough getting through all the different sort of uh, challenges and barriers of expressing mission in another, another culture. But here we see Jesus, his internal authority was established, his external authority was established. Then we have this beautiful discourse, and in verse 4, uh, chapter 4, verse 18, he says, He has anointed me. This is so important, brothers, sisters. I think if I try to consider what is at the heart of my understanding of what we're called to be and called to do, understanding and identifying your own anointing is very important. It's very important. Uh, John the Baptist says, a man can only have what is given him from heaven. You know, it's not about skills and talents in themselves. It's about knowing this is the anointing of God on my life. You know? Some of us are tall and ruddy and handsome like Chris. Um, some don't have those natural advantages. <laughs> but Chris is leaning into his anointing. We heard him beautifully saying that yesterday. It's the anointing of God. You know, and I've got to recognise what is the anointing of God on my life. You've got to recognise what is the anointing of God on your life. It's very, very important. Because people gather to anointing. You know, they don't gather to a good website or a great strategy. At the end of the day, when all is said and done, people will gather to your anointing. Okay? And so if you don't know what your anointing is, you don't know what to do to help or hinder it. You know? So our anointing is a gift of grace from God, not something that we've earned or gained by merit or effort. We need to learn to be a bit objective about our anointing. What is it? How does it operate? How do I get out of the way and let it do its work? Is one of my major personal dilemmas, is to, to shuffle my temperament out of the way and let my anointing do its work. Because you know, by nature, I'm quite a reserved, reticent, introverted character. 
And if I'm not careful, I, that can smother my anointing. I can allow it to smother my anointing. You know, oh no, not me. You know, I, so standing in a context like this is actually a huge personal dilemma. I wouldn't be what I would choose to do. But I have learned to recognise the anointing of God on my life. And so I think when I get my temperament out of the way, and as uncomfortable as I might feel, and as you know, self-crushing it might be at times, I've got to stand here and let my anointing do its work. You've got to do that, okay? You've got to recognise your anointing. You've got to do that, okay? Jesus describes his anointing in these verses here. He's, he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor and so on. Can you describe your anointing? Yep. My anointing is sticky. <laughs> Through allowing the operation of my God-given anointing, people stick to me, and more importantly, they stick to each other. Grantly prophesied, so, so Morris, you're a glue pot. Yeah, it doesn't, doesn't sound... Thanks, Grantly. Doesn't sound very flattering, but it helps me. Helps me understand it. Dave Devilish described me as the Paul Scholes of New Frontiers. <laughs> a friend, a friend said to me, "What are you morose, monosyllabic, and rubbish at tackling?" He said, "You know." <laughs> and he said, "No." What Dave actually said was, uh, "My role in midfield allowed the strikers to excel and score their goals." And every now and then, I would score a screamer that others would like to score themselves. <laughs> but don't let me do any pastoral tackling. <laughs> I've understood my anointing. My, my elders in my church have understood my anointing. Pastoral issue, get Morris out of the way. Okay? Get Morris out of the way. We'll deal with it, Morris. Okay? Grow up. Change. Do something else. <laughs> Morris, move out of the way. The point is, I've discovered my anoint, what my anointing is, and I must battle to make sure that my weaknesses or shortcomings or temperaments do not get in the way, okay? I'm not going to let that get in the way, all right? It would be easy to retreat behind my temperament. No, that would be to dishonour the gift of God and the anointing of God on my life. You've got to learn to be sure of your anointing in quite an objective way, I find myself, it's like I'm the third person in a conversation sometimes. I've sat, most of my best work is done around a coffee table where I'm sort of uh, helping, affirming, encouraging, strengthening. And, uh, and sometimes it's almost like I'm listening in on the conversation. I'm thinking, did I say that? Where did I get that from? You know? Where did I learn that? You know, I don't remember learning that. You know? And I sort of look at this and think, it's amazing. What's going on? This person's having a conversation with my anointing and I'm sitting there going, where's this? Great. So Luke 5, 10 to 11. From now on, you will be catching men. Jesus gives a simple vision. Okay? Keep it simple. We've, been, we've heard some beautiful uh, vision expression and statement from Clyde, from Chris, from others. Just keep it simple. It's a very simple vision. He says, hey, you're going to come. We're going to go and, you know, you're good at catching fish. We're going to go and catch some men. 